James 3.13 Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Well, may the Lord help us to understand and apply by his Spirit this very important portion of Scripture. You may be seated. I want to say at the outset that we're dealing with a somewhat difficult portion of Scripture. In fact, some commentators say that verse 5 is one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament. We'll see that as we get into this a little bit. You might have, If you have a different translation than the New American Standard, you might have noticed that already because it, pro- it may not have read the same as what uh, Jim just read to us. So we'll try to deal with some of that as we go along. But uh, just as a way of reminder, I want to say that the last time we, what we saw was James contrasting the, uh, a false wisdom, a wisdom of this world, which brings about disorder and every evil thing, He contrasted that to a true godly wisdom, a wisdom that is from above, which he says is pure and peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. So what we tried to bring out last time was that there is this false wisdom which leads to quarrels and fightings and disputes and factions, that type of thing. And then there's just the opposite. There's a peaceful, gentle wisdom that produces righteousness. So that's what we looked at last time. As we go into chapter 4, he's carrying on from there, and he asks this question. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? 
Is it not is not the source your pleasure pleasures which wage war in your members? So he's he wants to get to the real root problem here. He's talked about this false wisdom, but it goes deeper than that. So he's delving into this situation that apparently was uh something quite significant there in the groups that he was writing to. James has told us that there is a type of wisdom that's earthy and sensual and demonic. You might say it's a wisdom that's characterized by the world, the flesh, and the devil. What he does in this section is expand on that trinity of evil. The flesh, you see, mentioned in verse 1 through 3. The world is mentioned in verse 4. And the devil is mentioned in verse 7. But he emphasizes the flesh. Although he doesn't use that term. That's a Pauline term. uh, Something that Paul wrote about and expanded on greatly in his letters. But what James is talking about here, he speaks of the pleasures that wage war in your members. But I just think that's another way of talking about what Paul later talked about as the flesh. All that part of us that's unredeemed yet. That's what the flesh is, that part of us that's unredeemed yet. If you, you know, you should be painfully aware that the flesh is not redeemed. This body uh, gives you a lot of problems, physically and spiritually. So we'll talk about that a little bit more when we move on here. But let's let me just give you. This is not an easy message. It's not easy to give. It's not easy to receive. It's, it's there's some difficult concepts. But I want to start out with something simple. And that would be a very simple outline of the flow of thought in what this section we're looking at. Overall, you could outline these verses this way. First of all, the root cause of conflict, the root cause of the conflict that he was dealing with here, all these these quarrels and conflicts, that's verses 1 through 6. So the root cause of the conflict, and then the second part, the remedy, that's 7 through 10. So that's pretty simple, isn't it? The root cause and the remedy. Well, as I said, there apparently was some real difficulties in the the groups that James was writing to. And when he talks about uh, quarrels and conflicts, he wasn't talking about some uh, minor disagreements. He, He refers to them as quarrels, conflicts, fights, and even murder. Right off, this should tell us something that sometimes I think we get wrong. I think sometimes we have too idealistic view of the early church. You know, we want to be a New Testament church. Well, there's things about the New Testament church you don't want to be, and and this would be one of them. What was going on here with some of the uh, people that uh, James was writing to. What... uh, was happening in some of these groups may relate somewhat to the rivalry of some of the would-be church leaders, the teachers that he addressed there at the beginning of uh, verse 3. Let not many become teachers, brethren. Uh, we don't know for sure, but that's possible. Their words and actions may have been causing uh, some, some wrong influence there amongst the, the Christians. But I I will say this, even though we try to apply it back into the situation that it was written to, we also need to apply it to ourselves today. And ultimately, we're dealing with sinful desires fighting inside each one of us, even as we sit here today. Sinful desires, these pleasures that wage war in your members. So we're going to have to deal with some similar issues that they, these people were dealing with. When he mentions members, there at the end of verse 1, waging war on your members, 
I don't think he's talking about members of the church body. He's talking about warfare in our physical members, parts of our individual bodies, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our tongue, our brain, our, our organs, our hormones, all this kind of stuff that's still part of this unredeemed part of us. <clears throat> the war in our members brings about war among the members of the church. The war in our members brings about war, conflict, and, and quarrels amongst the members of the church. You see that what's happening here, how he's using the, the word members? Uh, a good, a good uh, cross-reference on this, I think, is uh, 1 Peter 2.12. Let me just read it. Beloved, I urge you, as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against your soul. There's a war going on for each one of us, you see. It's not over in Afghanistan or a place like that. It's right in you. Fleshly lust that wage war against your soul. So this warfare in our individual bodies when not dealt with by the power of the Holy Spirit, results in warfare within the church body. They weren't dealing with these things the way they should, and consequently there was conflicts and quarrels among them, amongst the people. The internal warfare is brought about by lusts and desires for pleasure. Now this word pleasure is interesting. He uses it twice, you see it there. Um, at the end of verse 4, is not the source your pleasures which wage war in your members? But you see it also again at the end of verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now that word uh, in the Greek, and I don't probably pronounce these right, uh, hedoni is, which is the word we get hedonism from. Hedonism, that's... That's uh, where this, this uh, word, uh, this Greek word, is translated uh, into our word pleasure. When we talk about hedonism, we're talking about a passion for self-gratification, pleasure, or position. A passion for self-gratification, pleasure, or position. And the term's used three different times in the New Testament, and every time it's used, it's used in a negative way. Way. Let me just read one of them to you. Titus 3.3 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. There's that same word. Spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. See, you see how that, that pleasure, that hedonistic attitude results in envy, hateful, hating one another. Well, that's what was happening here, you see. Uh, so, our passions operate in and through our bodily members. In other words, our worldly appetites and passions and lusts, if not kept in check by the Holy Spirit, will act through the eye, the hand, the foot, the tongue, and other members of our bodies to produce quarrels and conflicts in the church. That's, that's what verse 1 is talking about. Now, we've got to be careful here because it's easy to get off track and think that the body itself is an evil thing. This has happened down through church history a number of times. So it's important to emphasize that our physical bodies are not evil in themselves, nor the source of evil. That was kind of the Greek idea. All matter, all material things, all physical things were evil, and since the body was matter, it was evil itself. But the body is the battleground of evil. Now, let me just read a verse on this. Uh, Romans six twelve through 14 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its lust, and do not go on presenting your member, the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. 
but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So these members can be used as instruments of unrighteousness or they can be used as instruments of righteousness. This is a major difference between Greek philosophy and so many other of the religions of the world which denigrate the body and true biblical Christianity. As far as I know, Christianity is the only religion that teaches an actual resurrection of the physical body in relationship to our ultimate destiny, humanity's ultimate destiny. Christianity is the only one that teaches that. It doesn't teach that the body itself is evil. It's going to be redeemed. Physical. The physical body. Greek philosophy and many other religions view the body as a prison house of the soul, something we want to get rid of. What the Christian wants to get rid of is the flesh, which is different from the physical body, though it is related to it. Somehow the body is the physical battleground through which the flesh manifests itself. Again, our members, things like our hands and feet and eyes and ears and tongue, can be instruments of unrighteousness when we walk according to the flesh, but these same members can become instruments of righteousness when we walk according to the Spirit. Now, admittedly, this is somewhat of a difficult thing to pin down exactly, but however we understand this, the point is that our pleasures, our lusts, our selfful, sinful, sinful desires are what are the root cause of quarrels and conflicts among people. We fight and quarrel because we are covetous and envious and we don't get what we want. The flesh is never satisfied. The flesh will always be like this. Verse 2 speaks of committing murder because of lust. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Now, this is not the only time that James warns his readers about the sin of murder. He did it in two, chapter 2, verse 11, and he's going to do it again in chapter 5, verse 6. Now, surely, he's not telling these people to... He's not saying that these people actually committed murder. Rather, I think James, James is using the term the way Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably another example of where James alludes to his brother's teachings. Speaking harshly or insultingly with hatred and envy is a form of murder. It's like murder, Jesus says. One commentator said this, uh, this was Douglas Moo, he said, It is simply to take murder straightforwardly and to regard it as that extreme to which frustrated desire, if not checked, may lead. Frustrated desire, wanting you to do your own thing, frustrated, if not checked, will lead to this type of thing. It, it in that sense, is a form of murder. James is warning his readers about just where their envious desires might lead them if not checked in time. Now, I wanted to read just a little bit more from Moo here because he expands on this. He says, With penetrating insight, then, James provides us with a powerful analysis of human conflict powerful analysis of human conflict. The cause of them all can be traced back to the wrongful lust to want more than we have, to be envious of, and covet what others have, whether it be their position or their possessions. It's not just, I mean, you can expand this. He's talking about on an individual level here in in, uh, these groups, but you can expand this out to world conflicts. Why, Why do those happen? Well, it's because, as he says here, wrongful lust to want more than we have, to be envious, to covet what others have. 
even around the world in the wars that we see going on. You, if, you trace, if you could trace them back and really see what's down at the bottom, you'd find fleshly lust. Yeah. It wouldn't be faith in God. It'd be fleshly lust that's causing what we see in the conflicts in the world. Instead of being envious of others and therefore creating quarrels and conflicts, these people should be asking God for what they need. Faith in God would prevent this kind of thing. And that's why it goes on to say um, in verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. If you need something, you can ask God. You don't have to be envious. You don't have to be covetous. You don't have to to uh, start trying to fight over something that you want, you can ask God for it. You do not have because you do not ask. You remember, James has already told these people that God is graciously generous to them. They just need to ask. That's back in chapter 1, verse 5. So they can ask for what they need. But... If we go to God with things like like jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts, it will not help to pray. That's what he goes on and says in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Uh, Prayer is a powerful weapon for, for the Christian. Powerful weapon in his battle against evil but not if our prayers themselves are evil. God's not going to answer people who come to him with evil motives. So one thing we should say from this for all of us here, we need to be careful or even our prayers can be selfish. Those aren't going to be answered. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Verse 4, James poses another strongly worded question. He says this in verse 4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, everyone who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is using the word world here to mean that pattern of human life contrary to the will of God. The way human society is organized and functions apart from God. That's what he's talking about, the world. He's not talking about the sunsets and the... the, uh, birds singing and things like that. It's the way human society is organized and functions apart from God. Those ways of thinking and acting are the way the world lives, not the way God would have for his people. In fact, this self-centered way of living is the way of God's enemies, James says. So do you want to be do you want to have friendship with the world? If so, you'll be an enemy of God. Friendship with the world. Uh, we've been talking about authentic faith throughout this uh, time here in James. A life of authentic faith will challenge the spirit of the age, whatever the world is promoting at that particular time. It won't be a friend to it. It'll challenge it. Faith will always challenge that the ways of the world yeah. and not go along with them. That self-centered way of living will make a person an enemy of God. Some of these people, perhaps those who wanted to be regarded as leaders, were conforming to the world's ungodly ways of thinking and acting. Their quarrels and conflicts showed that they were trusting in the wisdom of the world and carrying out the desires of the flesh. The fact that these things were going on, James says, it just shows who you're listening to. To live like that, James says, is to commit spiritual adultery. That's the way he starts this out. You adulteresses. 
Why does he do that? Well, he's saying to be unfaithful to your heavenly lover and embrace the ways of the world is spiritual adultery. Now, when we talk about adultery in general, it means sexual unfaithfulness of a person who's married. Some of these people in some of these groups that that James was writing to, some of these people were being unfaithful to God by going after the world. So James calls them adulteresses. He's using a common Old Testament metaphor. God had taken the Jewish people to himself as his bride or his spouse, but they were unfaithful to him giving themselves to idols and false gods. Consequently, he, in the Old Testament, he calls them adulteresses. Let me just read a verse or two here. Ezekiel sixteen thirty-two. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. He's speaking to the Jewish nation here who had gone after idols and false gods. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. And Jeremiah three twenty. Surely, as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Those are just a couple of many verses you could look at. Jesus picks up this same terminology in the New Testament. He talks about the people of that time, the Jewish people of that time, being an evil and adulterous generation. So, just to pin it down here again, Seeking companionship with the world, the people that James was writing to were committing spiritual adultery. So he calls them adulteresses. Just, I mean, it's just a stark uh, a phrase here that he uses. Now, I don't think this means that they were totally turning away from God and consciously deciding to, following the, to follow the world. But they were imitating the world by discriminating against people by pursuing their own pleasures, by their judgmental attitudes, and by their bitter envy and selfish ambition. James says, you cannot do this as a Christian and maintain fellowship with God. This kind of flirtation with the world makes you an enemy of God. So when the professing people of God turn away from their divine bridegroom and turn to the world's ways, they are practicing spiritual adultery, something God takes very seriously. Authentic faith will substantially be faithful to our heavenly, I want to say spouse, but Somehow it doesn't seem quite right. The one who loves us and cares for us. Well, that brings us to verse 5. And if, if things have been hard to follow so far, they're going to get harder. <laughs> I hope they haven't been too hard to follow so far. But this is a difficult verse. It's difficult to know how to interpret because of a number of reasons. First of all, let me just read it. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. First problem we have is he says, he speaks about the scripture speaking of something, but there's no scripture like this in the Old Testament. Um, You see in verse 6, where he quotes an Old Testament verse, how it's it's uh, capitalized. But you notice here this verse that sounds like it should be somewhere in the scriptures isn't capitalized because you you can't find it in the Old Testament. So you got a problem there. What's he referring to? Secondly, the original reading uh, is uncertain. Do any of you have the King? I uh, use the King James version. I have King James version here today. Well, uh, we'll get to that in a moment. That's a little different too. Nobody, yeah, 
Nobody uses the King James. Well, let me tell you, let me tell you, if you had a King James Bible here, this is what you'd read. Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, the Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Now that's quite different. The Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. So there you got a problem with the original reading here. You got a problem with the punctuation. In the Greek, they didn't put the punctuation in there, so the person that's trying to translate has to put it in, and if, if the translation is uncertain, it's really hard to know where to put the punctuation. So the main problem really is this idea of this, uh, what's the meaning of this jealously desires? Is it referring to God's jealous love for believers? to have a complete allegiance to him, which is the way uh, the uh, New American Standard takes it? Or is it mankind's selfish, jealous nature, which would be a negative thing, which is the way the King James had it? Well, I uh, think the New American Standard has the better understanding of this, so that's what we're going to go with. And there's a reason that I think that uh, that's the best. And the key to verse 5 is verse 4. Yeah. Uh, as always, you've got to read the context. If you pick a verse out, you're really going to be in trouble without reading the context. So the key to verse 5 is how we interpreted verse 4. James is thinking of this subject of spiritual adultery, which God considers such a serious matter. For James, this brings to mind the jealousy of the Lord who desires unreserved, unwavering allegiance from the people to whom he's joined himself. That's what he's thinking about here. As God says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's what he's thinking about here. That type of a love relationship that God wants with his people. Now, as I mentioned, one of the problems with trying to understand verse 5 is that it sounds like we should be able to look up an Old Testament scripture that speaks of God jealously desiring the spirit which he's made to dwell in us. But there is no particular passage that states this. It seems best to think that James is referring to the general tenor of a number of Old Testament passages. A principle, you see, in the Old Testament. That's what he's thinking about. The scripture in general, he's saying, says this to us. Many sections of scripture speak of God's desire for his people to be holy and completely his own. And when they are not, there is a divine, holy jealousy. Let me just read some of these to you. Exodus 34:12. Watch yourselves that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which I'm going uh, which you are going, or it will be a snare in your midst, but rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall not worship any other god, for I the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and you would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. So he says, I'm a jealous God. I have poured out my love upon you and I want your love in return. Deuteronomy 6.12 Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you. So, that's what he's talking about here. At least some of these people to whom James was writing were turning from their true spouse, God, to follow the ways of the world. Now, 
even with that understanding, it's hard to know whether the word spirit in verse 5 should be capitalized the way it is in uh, the New American Standard. Some translations uh, do not have it that way. Uh, the uh, ESV, for instance, the English uh, Standard Version, or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Spirit says he yearns jealously over the Spirit, small s, he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So it's hard to know whether this should be capitalized as the New American Standard does it. If this verse is not referring to the Holy Spirit, then the idea would be that God is the creator of man's spirit. You know, he breathed into us the breath of life. He's the creator of man's spirit. And he demands the exclusive right to our ultimate allegiance. Our spirit should be his. It's made to love him and serve him. So that's the way the ESV takes it. He is jealous with a holy jealousy jealousy that this image of God he has given to us would be used to love and serve him. If the verse does refer to the Holy Spirit, the way the New American Standard has it, the idea is that God has a holy jealousy concerning the Holy Spirit he has made to dwell in us, which will not allow any rival spirit, such as the spirit of the world. So, I know that's got... You know, it's kind of hard... Uh, as, a, as one who's trying to teach these things, you can say, I'm just going to tell him what I think the answer is and not bother him with the problem. But the problem is, if you got a different translation, you're going to say, there's a problem with his answer. <laughs> so, so, I'm trying to uh, give you the reason for why I'm taking the position I do Realizing that it may not necessarily be the absolute final answer on this. But I'll say this either way, don't miss the point that God's standard is wholehearted devotion, and there should be no compromise with the world's ungodly ways. That's the real thing you don't want to miss out of this. God jealously desires us and has no place in our lives for flirting with the world's ways. He says that's, that makes you an enemy. It's spiritual adultery, and there's no place for that, you see. That's the emphasis that James wants to bring home to these people and should come home to us even after we try to analyze some of the difficulties with the verse. James is writing with a strong conviction of the seriousness of this sin and warning those who call themselves Christian that they may actually be enemies of God. If they live like this, if this stuff, if, the, if these quarrels and conflicts don't cease, if there's something doesn't change, something's drastically wrong here. You may well be enemies of God. It's important, I think, to remember that James, this is the same James that said that the wisdom from above is pure and peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits. But he uses this kind of strong language when he sees something of this nature taking place. When this type of thing begins to spread in the church, he knew he had to say something very pointed and strong. He tells these people who are embracing the world and causing quarrels and conflicts that they're adulterers, that they're sinners, that they're double-minded, that they're enemies of God if they continue that way. Well, that brings us to verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So even with these strong words... He lets them know that God will be gracious to the person who acknowledges their sin and humbly turns to him in repentance. That's what this section about, this verse, these verses from 7 through 10, they're about repentance. As he says in verse 6, there is a greater grace. 
God's not going to leave his people in that condition. If they're truly God's people, he's not going to leave them like that. There is marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. He will not abandon an unfaithful spouse who turns to him. He will not, this is a wonderful truth. He will not abandon an unfaithful spouse who turns to him. His standard remains the high and lofty one of wholehearted devotion toward God. But if a person will acknowledge their need and turn away from self-reliance and self-centeredness and any self-righteousness, God will give a greater grace. He will abundantly pardon and enable that person to get back on the right track. On the other hand, James does emphasize God resists the proud, the arrogant, the self-centered attitude. Such a person will not seek God in humble dependence. They won't submit to God. They won't resist the devil. And in fact, they're following the devil's footsteps of unrepentant arrogance and autonomy. God is opposed to the proud but he gives grace to the humble. So what James is doing is telling these people that the only proper way to handle such serious sin involves turning away from any self-justification and radically redirecting their thinking and allowing the Holy Spirit to examine their hearts and bring about a submission to God, submitting themselves to God in humble repentance and faith. So that's what, the, that's what the remainder of this section deals with, 7 through 10. It is a portrait of repentance. If you want to understand repentance, here's a good place to go in the scriptures. Repentance is an act of humble submission to God, which includes a choice to resist the devil and draw near to God, a commitment to moral purity both externally and internally, and a genuine remorse for one's sins. Yeah, that's in these verses. Let's just read them. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Depending on how you analyze these verses, there seems to be eight to ten imperatives that James considers to be part of their needed repentance. They must submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse their hands, purify their hearts, be miserable and mourn and weep, let their laughter be turned to mourning, their joy to gloom, and they must humble themselves. I think that last point, humbling themselves, is actually a summary of all the others. That's not to say that a person who genuinely repents must consciously go through these steps. But in one way or another, these characteristics will be part of any true repentance. There must be a true submission to God. You're not, you don't repent unless you submit to God. There must be a true submission to God. There must be a drawing near to Him. At the same, same time, we must set ourselves against the devil and his lies. You've got to say, I'm not going to believe these lies anymore. Along with this, there must be a sincere desire to purify our lives, keeping oneself unstained from the world, along with a godly sorrow for sin. This last point, the sorrowful sin, may not necessarily be something visible to others. You can have many tears and no true repentance, and no tears and yet very real repentance. What matters is a true desire to do what's right in God's sight. That's what repentance involves, a true desire to do what's right in God's sight. Not a double-mindedness that wants to be rid of the consequences of sin without being rid of the sin. That's often what's viewed as repentance, and that is not repentance. 
I just want to be rid of the consequences. But the sin, I'd kind of like to kind of hang on to some of that. That's not repentance. One commentator said, When the Christian compromises with the world and is double-minded, it is a sure sign that his sense of the gravity of sin has become blunted. In other words, where there's repentance and authentic faith, the sinfulness of sin is taken seriously, and there is a sincere, heartfelt looking to God for forgiveness and cleansing and deliverance from that sin. So if there is real repentance, true repentance, the world, the flesh, and the devil are all dealt with, even though they may not... uh, be directly thought of by the person that's repenting. They, they will all be dealt with in true repentance. But of those three, I'm convinced that the real key to repentance is this internal battle with the flesh. That's the real key. When the axe is laid to the root there, then the world and the devil will lose any foothold they have in the person's lives, life. So, as one person put it, one writer, he said, there needs to be a violent uprooting of our selfishness. Seeing how sinful selfishness is. So, as I'm bringing this message to a close, I want to apply what James is teaching to each one of us here today. An important question for all of us is, Is there any selfish desire or pleasure I'm trying to protect, hold on to, or gain? A desire to have my own way which makes me insensitive or inflexible. A desire for status and prominence which can foster jealousy and pride and arrogance. A desire to make myself look good which can often result in being critical of others so I can look better. A desire to get even, which makes us hurtful and harmful and spiteful towards others. Or a desire to have some self-indulgent pleasure. Now those things we have to let the Holy Spirit apply uh, in our lives and somewhat, you know, I'm not going to I'm not thinking of any particular person or anything here. I'm just trying to say this is what James is talking about, this type of thing. James's message is not the kind of spiritual direction that most people hear or even want to hear today. One writer said, The church is being pressured to rely on counsel which is only affirming programs that are merely entertaining and music that is always upbeat. Yet the problems James has addressed require a submission that is humbling, a resistance that is demanding, an attitude that is sorrowful, and and life changes that are radical. The fact is, there's be a lot of places you could go and never, ever hear anybody say anything like James said in verse 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. But if there's sin, selfishness, so much that it's bringing out quarrels and conflicts amongst the church, they need to hear that type of message. You need to... You need a godly sorrow for your sin, you see. That's what James is saying. That's that's something that uh, we don't want to... We don't want to avoid just because we don't like to hear that type of message. Now... I want to go on and say we don't want to miss the fact that this call to real repentance is reinforced and encouraged with wonderful promises right here. He says that if we will truly repent, if these people in this situation here and any of us 
He said, if we'll, do, if we'll repent, if there will be this true godly sorrow, the devil will flee from you. God will come near you, and the Lord will exalt you. Those are all promises right in this section. And authentic faith will take hold of these promises. And there will be joy and peace in believing. Uh, if, we, if we take these verses and say, uh, be miserable and mourn and weep, that's, well, that's just the Christian life, miserable and mourn and weep. No, that's, that's what needs to happen when you're sinning, when you're displeasing God. But if you do repent, there's joy, there's peace. Yeah. Although faith is not mentioned here, it is certainly implied. James is saying that authentic faith can expect that God will come near to forgive sin, to restore joy, and to strengthen the repentant sinner to live in a in purity and righteousness. For those that will humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, there will be a greater grace than their sins, and there will be exalt, exaltation in his time, in God's time. So, in closing, let me just say this. James, this entire letter, what he's doing in this entire letter, is instructing us, these people and us, to humbly live out our faith, to live out our faith in humility, in reliance on God's grace given to us in Christ. If we'll humble ourselves, we'll find God's grace enabling us to live the Christian life. And this is what James is, is just saying. Real, authentic faith will live the Christian life. Authentic faith will be faithful. Authentic faith will be pleasing to God. And when there's sin, authentic faith will repent and bring you back to where God would have you to be. So, we'll take up there next time at verse 11 as James again points to the fact that a life of faith always has profound effects on our personal relationships. That's what he goes into again as he's dealt with before has profound effects on our personal relationships.